you are about to listen to a sermon from Common Ground Church in Rapid City, South Dakota. We hope to see you in person. For more information visit commongroundcma.org. <clears throat> well, um, once again, good morning. Good morning. Yeah, okay, you're awake. I love it. Uh, we're going to start off this morning um, by talking about siblings. Yeah, uh-oh. Who here's got a brother or sister? Raise your hand loud and proud if you've got a brother or sister. Siblings. Raise your hand if you've got siblings. You guys pay attention, okay? i got my eyes on you. Yeah, you were t- I know I caught you. Okay, what I want you to do is uh, I want you to come up with, just think about a story, like the number one story in your head about your uh, a fight with your siblings. With one sibling. Okay, just think about that story. Everybody got it? You got one story? What I'd like you to do is I'd like you to turn to the person next to you and give like a 30 second snippet of that story of that story of fighting with a sibling. On your mark, get set, go. She picked a good partner then. Okay, 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 okay. Everybody who has a sibling should have one story, at least one story of, of, be, of beating up on your siblings. Anybody want to share one? Give me one. Just one public one. What's that? Go ahead, Jesse. My brother and I, um, we never really fought despite anything. It was usually wrestling. One time he made me mad enough that I punched him in the nose. Ah. And I gave him a bloody nose, and his response was to blow his nose in the tail of my shirt. <laughs> <laughs> Only siblings, actually. Yeah, does that, yeah, does that happen? <laughs> Go ahead, Destry. Um, my brother built me a fort, which was really nice, out of our couch cushions, and put me inside of said fort, then sat on the fort, and no wouldn't let me out, and I still to this day, like, no one fear. You still have the fear of like claustrophobia? Is that a just on couch cushions? Go ahead, Mary. Um, I just remember going with my little brother, offering to push me on the swing set. He pushed me really high, and then he stood in front of me with his arm out. So when I came forward on the swing, he punched me in the stomach. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there was actually an audible gasp. Okay. Would you like to give us the name of this brother so we can take care of him? He still lives in Rapids. Yeah, yeah, your family's got your back. It's okay. Don't even worry about it. Yeah, right? Anybody from this side? This side's already got it. No? Nobody wants to share? Too many to count for you, yep. So I had a sibling once. Uh, I have a sibling still, actually. <laughs> wow. Ooh. I have a sister. She's older. Her name is Jessica Fultinski, Jessica Kim Fultinski. And uh, Jessie is uh, three years older and two and a half years older than I am. And uh, I was surrounded by girls. 
We had neighbors across the street that were girls. Then they were uh, one year older. Uh, let's see, one year older than me, and then another year older than her, and then my sister. So there was four of us in a four-year span, and I'm the only boy in the neighborhood, except for the jerk boy that lived next to me that liked to beat me up. Right? So I'm, I have to play with girls all the time when I'm a, when I'm a kid. I don't know if that explains a little bit about me, but um, play, like they all did, you know, girls they they do things like they put on plays, and so I had to be like the guy part in every single play, or um, you know, which is just awkward as at best. Um, I did once get to play uh, Kevin Bacon's character in Footloose, so I'm pretty sure I rocked that part. Um, <laughs> My, my sister did all kinds of strange things to me. I'll give you two examples. One is uh, they decided to play pharmacist. Yeah, kid you not. Opened every bottle that my parents had in the, uh, in the medicine cabinet and put just a little bit of this and a little bit of that into a shot glass, into a, into a glass. And then had me and the other younger daughter, the other younger girl across the street had us drink this stuff. Okay, so I downed, when I was, uh, like, uh, I think I was like seven or eight years old, maybe eight years old, I downed an entire glass about that much of like Robitussin, NyQuil, you know, all the stuff that had the good chemicals in it. You know, like the, it was all had alcohol in it and all kinds of stuff, right? And I passed out on the stairs, like walking up the stairs, just, and I just went down. And I, my mom was like, oh, he must be tired. And then she put me in bed, and I slept for like eight hours, middle of the day. So good. Uh, anyways, so, yeah, so I survived that, you know, grew up to have an alcohol problem a little bit later, so, but whatever. Um, and then, uh, then I had, a, and then my sister, at one point in time, I, I was sitting in the living room, right, and I was, uh, we were bickering back and forth, and we were yelling. You ever get in one of those arguments where you're just yelling at each other? Even though you're not saying anything angrily, it's just you're yelling? Out of the, you know, it's a conversation, where you're like, how are you? And you're like, I'm fine! And it's just this angry conversation where you're just yelling at each other. And finally I yell up her. I'm like, would you get me a Snickers out of the freezer? And she's like, fine. And then she grabs the Snickers bar and she chucks it all the way down the stairs. Right, And I live on a split level. My, my sister doesn't have a great arm. But she chucks it from the kitchen all the way down the stairwell right to where I'm sitting there not paying attention watching TV. Hits me in the temple. <laughs> With this frozen candy bar. At like 67 miles an hour. I don't know how she did this, but she hits me just square, right? And there's this this bruise that's snicker-shaped all the way across my head. And so you go to my sister and you tell her, hey, tell me the story of the snicker bruise. And that's what she's going to tell you. She's going to be like, yeah, well, I grabbed this thing and I just winged it and then knocked my brother out. Because I seriously, I went down. Like, I'm, I was out. Siblings are uh, are fun, right? I don't know why God gives them to us, but you know, you actually see throughout throughout the history of scriptures, you see nobody fights like siblings, right? The very first thing you see after uh, after Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter one or Genesis chapter three and four moves into Cain and Abel, right? The first siblings, and what do they do? One kills each other, you know, one kills the other one, and I'm sure that that you know wasn't like all of a sudden one day he's like, man, ah, uh, that. That guy, he's my best friend. Oh, I know I'm going to kill him, right? No, it's not like that. Like, I'm sure they're bickering over time. And we see uh, also, you know, as God puts a bunch of brothers together, 12 brothers together, the child, children of, uh, of Israel together, they fight, like, all the time. And siblings do this. They will mock each other. They will push each other's buttons. They will get under each other's skin. And they will do it almost inherently. Like, uh, Mary, you now have siblings in your home. This is going to be what's going to happen from here on out. They're in the cute stage now, so that's great. And good, good for you. But, you know, a little bit later, that's what they're going to do, is they're just going to poke each other's buttons. Like, they're going to know how to do it inherently. And they love doing it. 
And one of the best things, one of the best tools you can use to poke at your ch- at your uh, sibling's buttons is to use the um, the scoffing method. And we're going to talk about scoffing from a biblical perspective. But scoffing from a bil- or scoffing the scoffing method of getting under your sibling's uh, skin is to repeat exactly what they said, except stick the sch sound in front of it. Right? You ever done this? Like they would say something along the lines of, you're gross. And then you'd be like, smash me I did it. You did it. I know you did. Somebody did. At least one person did. <laughs> scoffing from a biblical standpoint, scoffing from the Bible standpoint, is basically this idea of like somebody says something to you, you repeat it back to them, and you don't have to stick the SCH sound, but you repeat what they say back to them with a mocking, contemptory, uh, contemptive heart. Um, it would be along the lines of saying like, you're gross, and then going, you're gross. That's a scoff. That's the very definition of scoff. Okay, this is what biblically scoffing is, and today in Second Peter we're going to look at scoffers. And interesting, this is a very interesting idea that Peter lays out here: is this idea of mimicry with contempt, mimicry with contempt. And we're going to open up Second Peter, so grab a Bible. If you didn't bring a Bible, there's some here, or you can snuggle up next to somebody with a Bible, or download a Bible app, or something like that. That's fine. Uh, but Second Peter chapter three is where we're going to be, and uh, Peter is talking here uh, in Second Peter. He's uh, kind of ending his life. He's getting to the end of his. Uh, of his race. He's running the race and he sees the finish line. He starts to look at his life and say, okay, what are the things that I should give to my friends, to my family, to, to my church? What are the things, things I should give them, uh, that will keep them healthy? What are the warnings I should give them? What are the, the, what are the ways that I should tell them things are going to happen or things are going to look so that they can stay strong in the faith? And so that's what Second Peter is all about. Second Peter chapter one, two, and three. Second Peter one, we've walked through that. It starts off with this idea of we didn't follow cleverly devised myths, but God gave us His word, and it's something that's really sure, and it's actually more sure than the experience that uh, more sure than some of the experiences that you have is the word of God, and we ought to read our experiences through the word of God. And then chapter 2, he steps in and he says, but just so you know, there will be false teachers. False teachers will arise among you. And he talks about that and that there's going to be people who are going to come in and distort the Word of God and teach you separately separate things that are going to sound really good. They're going to sound great to you. And then in 2 Peter chapter 3, he starts off with this particular passage. And so we're going to read about 10 verses here and then I'm going to unpack it a little bit. We're going to talk about scoffing. It is on. Yes, it is. No, it's not. <laughs> no, it's not. Okay, sorry. <laughs> you turn your mic in. Okay, that's uh, yeah. See that scoffing? I just did it. It's <laughs> supposed to be silly. It's supposed to be silly thing. Okay, sorry. Um, I'm just addicted. I can't stop. All right, we got a list of this. Here we go, scoffing. Dear friends, this is now my second letter to you. I've written both of them as reminders to stimulate you to wholesome thinking. I want you to recall the words spoken in the past by the holy prophets and the command given by our Lord and Savior through your apostles. First of all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is this coming, he promised. Actually, I should read that like a scoffer, right? 
Where is this coming He's promised? Ever since our fathers died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. But they deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, the heavens existed and the earth was formed out of water and by water. By these waters also, the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. By the same word, the present heavens and earth were reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends, with the Lord, a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promises. Some understand slowness. He is patient with you. Not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. And the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. This teaching that Peter's laying out here in Second Peter is one that is contrary to our contemporary Western worldview. And the reason it's contrary to our contemporary Western worldview is I think what happened is we have had this, this worldview settle in, this default worldview, this default way of seeing things that I like to call functional Christian atheism. Functional Christian atheism. And quote fingers around the word Christian, of course. Functional Christian atheism is a way of um, trying to take, say, your morality from the Bible without believing in the God of the Bible. And what happens is that starts to tear apart actually you from either the scriptures or from God, because there are a lot of things in this text that are not about simple moralities like this, but is about an actual reality. Not about morality, but about reality. A little bit later, that reality will fuel the morality, and Nick is going to preach on that next week. But the reality that we're talking about here is the fact that there is a promise of an end judgment. And scoffers look at that, and he says, like, there's an inevitability that scoffers will come, just like the inevitability of there will be false teachers. He says, scoffers will come. Scoffers will come. And what they will say is they will say, with their contempt, he's most certainly not coming. Now, I love Evelyn, Evelyn Magnum, Magnum the, lady, uh, the older lady that was up on the screen. I love her faith, right? She says... Jesus is coming soon. And I make that my motivation to not only read the Word of God, but to tell other people about who God is. The reality informs her morality and it forms her actions. And she moves based off of that. But a scoffer will say, he is certainly not coming. In fact, they say, he's not coming. Everything's been going on as it has since the beginning of creation. Nothing's changing. Why do you say that something's changing? He's certainly not coming. But Second Peter doesn't, or Peter, in Second Peter, he doesn't just leave us wondering where this comes from or, or how this arises. What he does is he gives us kind of a, a blueprint of what happens in the human heart and, and how this all starts, and it will naturally flow into scoffing. And so I want to show you this through this text as to what he's getting at. And like I said, I think that it, this is very timely for us because in our world, in our worldview, in our, our, our contemporary culture, this reality of Jesus coming again, oftentimes we think, oh man, that's for crazy people. 
Man, that's for somebody wearing a sandwich board and standing on the corner of a street with a megaphone screaming about the end times. Man, that's for people who have gone a little off the deep end. Let's not be too crazy about that because that's a little too much. And so in our worldview, we actually are pretty sensitive about this whole thing, about Jesus coming. Yet, all of the Scripture, and particularly the New Testament, the apostles and the, 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 apostles and the, the disciples, they are teaching over and over again. And Jesus Himself teaches over and over again that there is an end and it is coming, and that is our motivation and our direction for why we are to act. And what happens is, is when we make this subtle shift saying He is not coming, there is no change, it's nothing but a little bit of morality, there's nothing but we just need to follow some of these instructions because that's really all that it is anyways is suggestions for our life. What happens is something settles in. A cold consumerism settles in. A cold consumerism settles in. Going, okay, if I follow this stuff, I should get something out of it. If I follow this stuff, I should, I should get, I should receive something out of it. And if I'm not receiving out of it, eh, whatever. Then it's just a, maybe a little bit of a, more on the suggestion side. Peter tells us that scoffers don't just, that that's a kind of an end result. He says it starts off a certain way, that it's not just that they will say he is not coming, but it says that he will deliberately forget, they will deliberately forget the creation. They will deliberately forget that long ago by God's word, this is verse 5, long ago by God's word, the heavens existed and the earth was formed out of water and by water. Starts off talking about deliberately forgetting the beginning, deliberately forgetting creation, deliberately forgetting that there is a God who made things. Now, I don't think that this is a, I don't think what he's talking about is they will deliberately overlook that it was a literal seven day creation. I don't think he's saying they will deliberately overlook that, uh, that we need to have our, uh, we need to have our battle with our evolutionary biologists. He's not saying that. What he's saying is this is likely about faith in the fact that there is a God who made everything and therefore or by His spoken word owns everything including you. And by His spoken word He holds your DNA and your molecules together and by His spoken word He could snap His finger and you would be a puddle of goo and nothing more. Scoffers will deliberately begin forgetting this idea. Will say things like, well, I mean, you know, it's not really like... I mean, it's not really a salvation issue if you believe that God created things or not. I don't really want to think about that. I don't really want to talk about it. In fact, it's too much of a hot-button issue. It causes too many arguments. I don't really understand the science. I don't want to understand the science. I don't want to look into the history. I don't want to look into the Scriptures. That's too much work. That's just too hard. Let's just forget about it because all I want to do is focus on Jesus when Jesus is the Word who spoke everything into being. And if we deliberately forget, deliberately set aside those things, what will happen is inevitably we'll go, well, if He didn't make everything, if He doesn't own everything, if His Word was not powerful enough to make the stuff that I'm standing on, then obviously He's not coming again. It starts to chip away at the reality of who God is and the nature of how He relates with His created order. I think what this means is that the first step to being a scoffer is basically denying that God owns everything, including you and every ounce of life that you have. To deliberately forget, to deliberately deny that He owns your job, your car, your spouse, your kids, your life, your breath, your very next heartbeat. He made that and He calls it into order. To begin to think somehow that all He did was He kicked the ball rolling and now your heart keeps beating on its own. Removing God from the picture of every single waking moment. That's the first step. 
And now I hope you can see where this is starting to become our default Western worldview, right? Because oftentimes we believe that God just wound everything up and then He kicked it off and now it's just moving on its own. A scoffer will functionally believe that I got this life, I gained this life apart from God, that I'm simply, my mom and dad made a choice and now I'm here and I got some DNA from them and it kind of messes me up a little bit and I don't really like them but I kind of got to deal with them and now I got a family and some siblings and they're kind of weird but we don't really know how that works. Like I got this just on accident. No, actually God gave you your parents, God gave you your sibling that you fought with, God gave you your DNA, your hair, your eye color, everything. God gave you that, gave you the personality that you have, gave you the structure that you have, gave you the land that you were born into. We can see this actually we can see this over and over again in Scripture. God gave you these things, gave me these things. And so to deliberately start to forget them, it chips away at our worldview, it chips away at the reality of who God is and who we are in Him. But it doesn't stop there, right? So that's, that's one thing. And so that's, I think, I think actually what Peter's getting at is there's actually multi-tiers to this. It's not that, you know, it's not that it's a big, there, we can struggle in the creation thing. That's okay. But let's not add into it the next few things because the next thing is scoffers will deliberately forget the past. Says that in verse five, it continues on. They will deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, the heavens and the earth were formed out of water and by water. In verse six, by these waters also, the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. And he's talking about the judgment of the sins of the past. <laughs> judgment of the sins of the past. I'll never forget uh, driving down. Uh, now I will forget the street name. Uh, driving down uh, a street, an awesome street in Duluth, Minnesota. And uh, there's a Christian radio station in Duluth, Minnesota, and they have a you know one of those billboard thingies that sit on the lawn uh, the, that you put the letters in and you change it, and then they got all cheeky with it because they'd search Google things and be like, "Haha, we're going to put this really funny pun." I don't know if you've ever seen those things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So they had one of those things on the lawn, right? And they would put things like um, there was, they got into a battle with a guy who was standing out on their lawn. So they would put this thing on there like, "God is not mad at you," right? And then there would be a guy standing out there with a cardboard saying, sign, yes he is, quoting scripture. And then they put up there like, um, God loves every human being or something like God, whatever. And then he would have another scripture to back it up. And they got into this battle over and over and over again. And basically, I actually talked to this guy, what he was trying to get, he was kind of a jerk about it, and I'm not going to endorse this method, but what he was trying to understand is he was trying to help people understand as they drove by. So he was trying to help them understand that God judges sin. Because he felt as though we were losing this in our worldview. And that's because we are. Peter continues here that a scoffer will deliberately forget that God judges. That God sends specific things to target at the sin in your life, which we would consider discipline as his children, but the world would see as judgment. It is God saying that is wrong and the way that you're acting is wrong. And so I'm going to, this is, I'm going to direct that. I'm going to work with that. I'm going to unload. I'm going to make your wife, your wife, your life unwind. Maybe your wife, I don't know, but your life unwind in such a way that it's going to fall apart and you're going to be left with the consequences of the choice that you're making because that is the judgment that I have for you right now. And we're also storing up stuff for the future. And the whole world is falling underneath this. God brings wrath for sin. God is a God who is fiercely passionate about His glory, about His justice, about His love, about His mercy, about His grace, about His life, about His reality, about His 
power about His goodness. He's so passionate about that because He wants us to be able to see that. And so He will fight for that. And when people detract from God's glory and His goodness and His power and His mercy and all that stuff, when they detract from it, God will react to that. He wants His name to be known among the nations. He wants people to to, to obey Him, to love Him, to worship Him, to honor Him, to walk with Him, because He made us. And He knows that apart from Him, we can do nothing. Stefan pointed this out a couple weeks ago when we read through Mark. It's real fascinating, right? The God of the universe made everything. He made uh, the creation. He made the created order. He made the animals. He made the earth. He made the everything. He made you. He made me. He even made demonic beings and angelic beings, right? And we read in the book of Mark, what are the things that obey Him? Demonic beings, angelic beings. Even he says the rocks will cry out if you do not. Like I, and the wind and the waves. Like all the created order obeys him, except for whom? Us. Except for the humanity he runs into. That is what God's talking about when he's talking about sin. And in the past, he has judged this. And he's referencing here Noah and the flood. And he's talking about in the past, God, when, it, when it's gotten bad, God steps in to to show and to reveal some of the wrath for that sin. And scoffers will not only say, well, God doesn't own anything. Therefore, if He doesn't own anything, He doesn't have the right to punish anybody. All He does is He loves. And so what happens is you'll step into this, uh, you'll step into this, this whirlwind of this declining worldview that goes, okay, God didn't create anything. He doesn't own anything. Therefore, because He doesn't own anything, He doesn't really care. He doesn't really care about what's happening. He doesn't really know about what's happening. And it just keeps going on and on. And then Peter talks about this even further. And he says, By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. And so now he's talking about the promises of the future. He's talking about the, the future judgment that's coming, the future wrath that's coming, the future um, punishment for sin that's coming. So it should naturally fit here, right? So if God... If God does not own anything, if God does not make everything, if God by His Word did not make anything, then He does not care about anything and we can do whatever we want. He's just giving us some suggestions for a little bit better life. And if we don't obey them, no big deal because He doesn't actually judge any of that stuff. And so then the next step would be, and we know that He's not going to. Like it's, there's not going to be, it's just going to continue on and on. This is the way that life is. We're not going anywhere. It's just going to keep going and it's just crappy and we're never going to get out of it. And it's just going to go on and on and on and on and on. And this is where, like a, like a flood, the worldview twists around and the scoffer begins to mimic Christianity, mimic the way, the life of Jesus Christ, while denying that He owns everything, that He cares about everything, that He cares about it enough to step in and judge and that He's coming again to save it. Does that make sense? This is why the Christian worldview, or the, the excuse me, the dominant Western worldview, happens to be this worldview of functional Christian atheism. See, functional Christian atheism is this idea that God actually is not around anywhere, but that Jesus was maybe a real guy, but he was probably a little bit misunderstood. And so what Peter says is he says, hey, but we need to do one thing. We need to remind ourselves. In fact, he continues on in verse 8. says, but do not forget this one thing, right? So they will forget, deliberately forget these things, creation, judgment, promises. They will forget these things deliberately. And he says, but do not forget this one thing, dear friends. 
with the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow on keeping His promises, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. A couple things to note about this particular chunk is it looks like it's a magical uh, escape hatch and be like, well, you know, nothing's changing. And psh, that just means that God's I mean, it is, time's a little weird with God. It's just magic escape hatch out of the debate. It's not what he's talking about here. What he's actually talking about is don't forget this one thing and don't forget the character of the Lord. And here's two big things. One of the big things is God is faithful. He's not slow to keep His Word. His Word is being kept today, right now. In your life. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? Really, do you believe that? When Jesus says that apart from you, or apart from Him, we can do nothing, when He says that it's good that He goes away so that He will send us the Holy Spirit, because then through the Holy Spirit we will hear the Word of God, and we will be able to hear and attest what the Word of God is, and then actually move through that Word of God, and then apart from Him, we're, we're just, we're ruined. Those are God's words. Do you know that they're being, they're being held up in your life right now? He's not slow to keep His word. He is currently fulfilling His word and keeping it. The best way I've heard this explained by Robbie Zacharias is he's like a tapestry maker. Uh, I've never seen anybody make a tapestry, but from what I understand, they use thread and they just wind it through the tapestry deal and they slide a little thing and it becomes this beautiful tapestry. And every single thread is perfectly aligned, dark threads, light threads, on and on and on in order to build this beautiful scene. And that's what God is doing, is He is patiently winding things together in order to display the glory of His grace. The question is, do you believe that He is faithful? That He will do what He accomplished, or that He will do what He said He's going to do? But He doesn't stop there. He continues, it's not just remember that God's faithful, it's also remember that He is patient. Wishing that none should perish. Wishing that none should perish, but that all should come to repentance. In fact, he even says, and I just kind of noticed this as I was reading it, oftentimes we think, oh, he's being patient with all of the non-believers. Who's this book being written to? Believers. He says he's being patient with you, wishing that none should perish, but that all should come to full repentance. Then there's a little bit more that comes next week about bringing the Word of God to people. He's being patient with you. God is patient. For God, time does not carry the same weight that it does for us. The clock is not a cruel master for Him. He does not feel the ticking of the seconds and the nine to five, and He doesn't feel the coming and the going of the, of the seasons like we do. God is not ruled over by efficiency or timing. He doesn't like fast food. Like none of that stuff, right? Like he's not, he's not an efficiency based God. He's not impatient. Everything, have you ever thought about this? How much in your life is ruled over by impatience? How much in your life is ruled over by impatience? Why would anybody go to Taco Bell? Because it's delicious. Wrong. Yes. <laughs> it is. Yeah, David's like, no, it is not delicious. It is about efficiency. Let's get the food in and out as fast as humanly possible, right? Like that's what it's all about efficiency. It's all about efficiency. Our whole world is built around efficiency. Our cars are built around efficiency. Our houses are built around efficiency. Who here's got a clock in their house? 
Who here looks at the clock in their house? Yeah. Did you know that that clock as a decoration was never even a thing until 200 years ago? Until 200 years ago. And you can march, you can look through human philosophy, and you can see as soon as the clock became a centerpiece in the higher upper-ups of the, of the world, efficiency started to become one of our gods. You can actually walk through this in, in human philosophy. Efficiency started to rule us because we were so aware of the time. Right now I'm looking at six clocks. All of them are different. So that's good. And I don't care about the clock. Most people know that. Most people know that. God is not impatient. He's not ruled over by impatience. He's looking to do things the best way, not the quickest way. You ever tried to build something the quickest way? Some of you woodworkers, you ever try to build something the quickest way? Every time you work with me, right, Jamie? Yeah. <laughs> These guys are all sitting on what I built the quickest way humanly possible. Good thing we had Jake here. Slow me down a little bit. If you ever build something the quickest way possible, does it work? Maybe. For a while. Does it work the best? Probably not. Is it going to injure somebody? Almost certainly. <laughs> if you ever try to build something to do as fast as you humanly can, you know what's going to happen. You're going to overlook the details. You're going to overlook the details. Even painstakingly going through things to try to get every detail, you're still probably going to overlook details because you're human and you're imperfect. Think about if God did things impatiently. Think about all the details He would miss. Think about all the details He would miss. God does not do that. So remembering God's character and wrestling with how we see Him, this is the heartbeat of the, of the Christian. This is the heartbeat of the person who lives for Jesus, who loves Jesus, who has Jesus living inside of him and the Holy Spirit dwelling within him. This is the heart of us. And it flies in the face of our culture because this is all about relationship, getting to see God and to know Him and to dwell in His presence and to understand who He is. Not just in our knowledge and our head, but in our heart to build a relationship with Him. This is what Jesus does in our world and in our life as He tries to relate with humanity. Unfortunately, though, many live as functional Christian atheists. See, the Christian heart, the heart of somebody who is in Jesus ought to say, according to this passage, ought to say, I will be patient and I will work and I will slave so that all the world may hear and so that all will come to full repentance. But what we often see is we hear prayers going, Oh, Lord Jesus, Jesus, just come back right now because I'm tired of this stuff. I wish that the whole world would perish. I want everybody to go to hell because I'm tired of living here. That is functional Christian atheism. Or we say something along the lines of, God, I know you gave me this word and I know that you say that it's going to never ever pass away, but meh. It's not efficient enough for me to read it and know you. Functional Christian atheism will say things like, God is not wise. God is not good. God is not patient. God does not time things right. God does not exist. God is not here. And I am alone. But I will claim to be Christian. This is the default American worldview, and it's what we would call scoffing. God created stuff. God created stuff. God's returning. God's returning. 
God's word is eternal. God's word is eternal and powerful. It's not just saying that, it's saying it with our life. God's word is how you get to know God. Me. There are people around us who need to know Jesus Christ because apart from Him, they are, they are headed towards an eternal judgment and we have been given the keys to the kingdom. We've been given the keys to the kingdom. Do you kind of sense that? This is what we're surrounded with. And this is why our communion table is so important. This is why this is so important, okay? This is not just a ritual we do. It's not just, your body was broken and your blood was filled. This is a moment where we get to understand that Jesus' body was broken as, as means to bring us back to Him, but as also means of promising that our body will never be broken to the extent that His is. His blood was spilled for us so that we can be covered and never have to face that judgment but it is also something we take in and say, I do not just carry this for myself but I carry this out of here to the rest of the world. Paul says that as often as you do this, you proclaim my death until I return. Unfortunately, oftentimes we come to this table and we take and we partake and we partake and we partake, but we don't bring it out of here. Did you know, I don't know if you knew this, uh, I, I should be concerned about time and I will, we'll wrap up on this. I don't know if you knew this or not, but in the first couple of centuries, the communion table was not like this. It was not teeny tiny little plastic cups, right? Shocking, right? Ooh, no. They did not have Welch, Welch's grape juice. That was something that came out of the Prohibition movement, right? So our country just uh, got rid of alcohol, and all of a sudden the Welch brothers were like, man, I know it's going to be the best thing, grape juice. And so they <laughs> built this huge monolithic empire based off of the fact that churches had to buy grape juice in mass. In mass. <laughs> all right, anyways. But if you rewind this all the way back to the first century and the second century, the communion table... You brought your own bread and you brought your own wine to share with your brothers and sisters. And then what you did was you took that, the deacons or the elders would take to whomever could not be there because they were homebound or because they were in a, in a home and, and had kids or something like that or, and, and couldn't get out and couldn't get to the, the normal worship service. They would take from the table and go deliver it to the other people. I don't know if you knew that or not. That's the first century's practices. First three centuries, actually. And so what happened is the communion table was not about coming and taking. It was about coming, grabbing, sharing a meal with each other, and then getting out of here to go to share with those who couldn't come. Think about how much of a worldview that changes. That's actually our pattern. Come, receive. But don't just come receive. Come receive and then go. Come receive and then go. This is a pattern of life, not just something we observe. So we're going to pray, and then Matt's going to come up and lead us in a couple of songs. And so what I tell people here all the time is we practice uh, open communion here at Common Ground Church. You don't have to be a member in order to partake. But I just ask that you do business with Jesus. And maybe the business you need to do today is confront this atheistic Christian worldview inside of you. Maybe you need to confront that idea of like, 
man, all I've been doing is praying to get out of here. I just want to go home. And what that means is I'm condemning everybody to eternity in hell. And I need to wrestle with that in my heart. Or maybe you need to just wrestle with all kinds of other stuff. But I just ask that you do business with Jesus before you come and take. And if you have a place, if you're in a place where you're not ready to do business with Jesus, it's fine. It's okay. No judgment, no condemnation. You stay where you're at. It's okay. We'll pray for you. I will pray for you. Talk to me about that. I'd love to pray for you and talk through, through things with you. But scripture will tell you, do not come. Do not partake if you are, uh, if you do not have a, a heart that's at least done business with Jesus. So let's pray. And then uh, you'll have two songs to do business with Jesus and come on up. Um, we believe here that there's no mediator between you, but uh, Christ Jesus, between you and God besides Christ Jesus. So you come and you partake on your own. Lord Jesus, we come before you and we ask that uh, today you would challenge things in our heart, things that have gotten darker when maybe we didn't know that they did. Things that have started to slide and hopefully maybe, I don't know, maybe there are some here that can see like that slide away from, well, you didn't create anything, so therefore you don't care about anything, so therefore you're not coming, so on and on and on. Lord, I pray that we would wrestle back and work through things that have crept into our lives and into our hearts. Holy Spirit, we need You to be able to do that. So please come and please change us. Move us into Your presence. And Lord, we thank You for this day and we thank You for the fact that You do speak to us through the power of Your Word and You speak to us through the power of Your Holy Spirit and You speak to us and move us in, out of this place to, to go share with others. Lord, help us to be about that. We love You and we give You this day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. We hope you have been blessed. Please join us again at Common Ground Church.